for instance, in New Canaan, Connecticut, where we're working with the town to rebuild their hundred year old theater. I mean, it's going to be beautiful, but it's a, it's a, it's the gem of their downtown. It's gorgeous. And you know what? It should be restored and we'll restore it with you and we'll run it. And that to me, that to me is sort of the core of who we are. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, the pulse of theatrical exhibition. Joined by our colleague, Sean Robbins, chief analyst over at Box Office Pro. And together we will be looking at the entire performance of the first half of 2023 at the box office and previewing what we have in store for the second half of the year, a half of the year that we're already in the midst of, because in the feature segment, we're going to be having our colleague, Rebecca Pauly, interviewing actor Patrick Wilson, who's also an exhibitor, talking about his new movie, Insidious, The Red Door, and some of his favorite aspects of working in the exhibition industry. That's coming up on the second half of the episode in our feature segment. But first, Sean, welcome. How are things? Uh, I hope you've been getting to the movies lately. Trying to, as often as possible. This is uh, We're at the point this year where if I didn't go any other time, it was going to be this year because of Oppenheimer and Mission and, and Indiana Jones. So yeah, if I don't see another movie again after July... As long as I see those three, I'm happy. With the exception of Dune, I have to get I have to get out and see that one. Oh, a lot of traffic right now. You're absolutely right. At this point in the summer, I don't think we've been in a position like this for years, Sean. Maybe summer 2019, where we have so many high-profile titles hitting screens uh, subsequently. You know, over the coming weeks. Yeah, you know, and as we'll get into this a little bit, but as much as we kind of look at. Comparisons to 2019, I still think the fact that we're seeing the number of movies out right now compared to where things were last year, even though the the box office might be kind of, you know, going back and forth in terms of keeping keeping pace, the fact that we have three more movies in a theater right now than, you know, maybe one last year that was doing the kind of business that it was is an encouraging sign overall, I think. Well, let's start with uh, what's coming up, or what's already out, actually, by the time this episode airs uh, on Thursday. We have on Wednesday, July 12th, opening Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, Part 1. For fans of that series, if you go to last week's episode of the Box Office Podcast, Russ Fisher and I go over the entire box office history of each single Mission Impossible movie. Now we got to talk about the new one. The numbers that we have available now, you can find at boxofficepro.com. We're talking here, Sean, in terms of a three-day weekend number and a five-day opening weekend number since it's a Wednesday debut. What are you forecasting on both those aspects? Yeah, this one is definitely one that won't have a lot of comparables uh, because in addition to the fact that it opens on Wednesday, it has Tuesday previews. They're doing Walmart sneak previews on Sunday. Those have already happened by the wait, time everybody's wait listening a minute. to this. What's yes. a Walmart sneak preview? <laughs> That's actually something that, that sounds inappropriate, if you right. ask me. That, that yeah. doesn't sound like a movie term at all. Can, can you please go into detail on this? It's available to Walmart Plus subscribers, I believe, is the name of their platform. It's They very rarely ever do this. One of the very few times I can think of was Man of Steel 10 years ago. They had what were called Walmart 
previews. And <laughs> they're doing it again for Mission Impossible. So that's part of all of this big opening weekend, essentially. Those- now, to clarify, you're not watching this movie at a Walmart parking lot. Right. The term Walmart sneak preview implies something happening at a Walmart parking lot, Fair not point. available. Yes, to these everybody. are in theaters. These are yes. in theaters. Fortunately, that's good. <laughs> right. So all of that in mind, I think the biggest thing that I'm looking at is is the fact that this movie kind of rides in the wake of Top Gun last year. Had that not happened, I think things would be a little bit more predictable. Mission Impossible kind of settled into, you know, a fifty to sixty million type opening range over the last couple of films, finishing a little over two hundred million domestically. I think there's a little bit of a bump potentially here because of Cruz doing what he did over the past year. And he's really out promoting this movie again, arguably probably more than any other movie has been promoted, I think, so far this year, in large part because of the strike going on. So with looking at the five day, I don't think it's unrealistic to maybe expect something like 90 million, maybe even close to 100 million or over if audiences feel about the movie that it seems most critics generally have so far. Now, we have to clarify here because a couple of weekends ago, we had the opening weekend of Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, which was labeled uh, what we have to say it like it is a disappointment. $60 million three day frame, $82 million five day frame. Big studio tentpole, big action movie. We catalog that movie as a box office letdown, as a disappointment in the market. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 isn't forecasted to make a lot much more money. But as you're saying, because of what's come before it, we're not looking at that like a disappointment in the market if it opens in a three-day frame, let's say at $65 Exactly. And, you know, Tom Cruise is such a big player on the global front that these films typically drive a huge share of the revenue outside of the domestic market. I think that's one reason it'll be looked at a little bit differently than Indiana Jones. I think there's certainly a lot more heat behind this franchise and Tom Cruise right now than than there was for Indy. Uh, Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And we have to look at the track record, right? Every film, every franchise, every star has its own story. If we looked at the Indiana Jones movies in 2008, Indiana Jones came back from a long hiatus with a $100 million three-day opening weekend. We expected something, maybe not the same, but not a huge drop-off. We had a 40% drop-off with uh, Dial of uh, Destiny. In this case, we know that the Mission Impossible movies usually end up between the $50 and $60 million three-day opening range. And what we're projecting here is an improvement on that. That's why, even though the numbers are similar, One story is telling you one thing, the other one is telling you something else. And I think that's a great way to come into the mid-year review part of the conversation. Let's go over everything that's happened together here, Sean. The first half of the year, we ended up making between $4.3 billion, $4.4 billion at the domestic box office. What's your grade for that performance? You know, I think grading on a curve a little bit, just because we are still in the quote-unquote post-pandemic mindset and will be. I mean, it's always going to be post-pandemic, but I, I would give it you know, an A-. minus. I think that's fair. Maybe in, you know, if the only an A or an A+, plus would be a little too generous, but I think it deserves the A- minus in large part because of two animated movies doing so well in the first half of the year, and that's, that's what we had been missing for the last couple of years, to be honest. We, outside of Minions last year, we didn't have a Mario or a Spider-Verse, but we've had those this year. And we've had other films that have have catered to different audiences. We've had Little Mermaid not only open well domestically, but have legs domestically and, and essentially perform very similar to Aladdin before the pandemic. Guardians 3 
opened a little bit on the low end of expectations, but had positive word of mouth and ultimately had really good legs itself. So those films on the top tier really carried it. But then, you know, we can also look at some of the mid tier films that especially in spring and even, even early in the year, like Megan carried the, the market from a very early point on that didn't happen last year. Yeah, let's go into what worked in the first half of the year, and we'll follow that up with what hasn't worked for the first half of the year. Uh, let's start, obviously, with the highest grossing movie of 2023 so far. It might end up keeping that title by the end of the year. The Super Mario Brothers movie released by Universal, that has to be at the top of our list. Yeah, absolutely. I was bullish on this one for a long time already, but it, it just has gone above and beyond for it to take the Easter opening record for it to still have legs after that and really end up being something of a rarity nowadays, like maybe not with animated movies, but critics were very sour on the movie and it kind of created some concern before it came out. We started asking questions, can this meet the hype and the expectations that a Mario movie has? And it did. And audiences ended up loving it. It really showed that that parents and kids had just been yearning to, to go back and see a movie like this that they hadn't really had since Minions last summer. Now, another animated title that performed exceptionally well this year was uh, Across the Spider-Verse. Is that the title? Gee, I always forget the title here. It's Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. These these things get harder every... Part one, maybe? No, it's just Across the Spider-Verse. Across, they get yeah. harder every year, by the way. Yeah, we have uh, Into, Across, and then Beyond is the trilogy closer. <laughs> all right. I'm just learning English all over again here, but thanks to Spider-Man. But listen, this movie, again, surpassed every single expectation. It's a movie that audiences saw, that critics loved. I'm very excited about the next entry uh, in this series. It performed well above the expectations here, out-earning the theatrical total of the original, I think, within the first two weeks of release. Right. This was certainly one of those cases of, of films that built their audience in between the, the first film and the, and the second or the first sequel, I should say, because and then we had a feeling that would happen. It's been five years that original Into the Spider-Verse was just hugely beloved, not just by fans, but a lot of people won an Oscar. So seeing this sequel do what it has done this summer for an animated film to perform on the level of a live action Marvel movie and it really speaks to several different things. It shows that, again, people will still go superhero movies when they have something new and different to offer. And also that animation can branch out and, and be a little edgier and embrace these different styles. That plays into something else we'll talk about in terms of other studios and what they've been doing for a long time. Sony is doing something different here. And that really connected with not just fans, but young audiences in general. And we're talking about connecting with audiences. We're talking about uh, criticisms online that weren't really warranted or were coming in with... Uh, you know, different intentions other than engaging with the film. The number four film of 2023 was definitely a target when it came to this online abuse, The Little Mermaid, which uh, opened maybe not as high as we wanted it to, but has slowly and quietly been rising up the ranks. It is now the number four release of 2023. What do you make of a movie like this one? Yeah, I think the biggest takeaway so far is the fact that it's held on at the box office. I mean, it, after its opening weekend, maybe it didn't have seemingly quite as strong of a reception as Aladdin seemed to a, f a few years ago, but that's proven maybe not so correct because it's eventually going to triple its opening weekend gross. And by any modern standard, that's really good, especially for a built-in IP property like this that had a big audience and had a, a holiday opening. It helps that it's essentially been the only female-targeted film to open since then, and Barbie will change that soon enough. But either way, you know, it's it's kind of the last of Disney's 
treasures from the 90s animated films. And obviously, we have to consider the worldwide conversation and box office wise, it, it has not lived up to what was hoped for there. But on the domestic front, at the very least, it's done just as much, if not more so than I think we could have asked for. And let's move on to the sort of movies here at the multiplex that have performed, but were never expected to hit a $200 million plus domestic threshold, but that have really surprised beyond expectations. Let's start at the top of this list. One of my favorite movies of the year so far, John Wick 4 from Lionsgate. Lionsgate roaring back into the box office, enough for a series that seemed to be ready to go into spinoffs to actually say, hey, wait a minute, guys. Maybe there's a John Wick 5 after the John Wick 4 ended up being the highest grossing movie in that franchise. Oh, talking about franchises that keep going and keep on hitting new heights. We had Scream 6, which uh, hit its highest uh, box office figure this year upon release. We also had Creed 3, which also set all-time high for this uh, Creed spinoff of series. So you are seeing franchises that maybe aren't your big headline franchises from Disney coming out and bringing in record numbers for their series like John Wick, like Scream, like Creed. We had all those happening in the first half of the year. Talking about franchises that are recovering here, I have to add this one to the conversation, Sean. Transformers, Rise of the Beasts, the Transformers series had been giving us diminishing returns, kind of like that Fast and the Furious franchise has domestically. But Rise of the Beast came back out of nowhere and is actually overperforming uh, some of those movies that came out from uh, from Michael Bay on the back half of the original series. Yeah, and I think collectively, you know, looking at Transformers and Creed and Scream, these are 1980s, 1990s era properties that have enjoyed some kind of resurgence for for one reason or another, where, whether it's because of sustained quality in terms of Creed, Scream branching out and appealing to today's modern you know, younger horror fans. I think Jenna Ortega coming off of the Wednesday series, her being in that film really helped that. And Transformers Rise of the Beast, based on one of the most popular storylines of that franchise from, from the early 90s, and really kind of embracing a style that I think maybe people had wanted to see after the Michael Bay films and you know, catapulting a little bit off of the Bumblebee film, which a lot of people enjoyed. So just looking at all three of those, it's very interesting because we're at this point where it's now 2023 and, and franchises that have, you know, maybe been around for 30 or 40 years, I mean, including Indiana Jones, some of them can still work, but they're also, they seem to be performing within a similar range. What changes how we talk about them is how much money is being, being spent on them. And certainly Indiana Jones was in a much different range than those other three films. And now let's move on to the movies that haven't worked, unfortunately, at the box office here in the first half of the year. Starting at the top of the list, unfortunately, with Warner Brothers and The Flash. One of the big reasons Warner Brothers is ranking so low on our studio performance chart is the misfire that was this movie. I don't want to go into a full dissection of what happened here, Sean, but let's keep it on the lessons we learned from what didn't work from The Flash. Yeah, it's hard. Novels could be written about this, to be honest. I think <laughs> the reality is that, you know, would it have helped if Michael Keaton had been go, able to go out and promote this a little bit more himself? Maybe. I don't know. Uh, that's a theory that's floated around out there because he was used as the selling point in the marketing because of obvious reasons relating to Ezra Miller. Warner Brothers did not want to make them the focal point. That being said, I think there were just a lot of other elements in play here. The DC brand has been waning for a while. I think there's a lot of confusion outside of fans, maybe even among fans, about where these timelines are and 
who's going to be sticking around when James Gunn takes over. It just kind of hit the point where it felt like an event film that ultimately didn't feel like an event to a lot of people. So looking back on it, I also look maybe the lean on nostalgia was a little too much. You know, movies have been looking at this this 80s era resurgence of, of characters for so long now. This was just kind of the most recent and you know the umpteenth version of it just this year. And that was followed by another version of which it was in followed the 80s, by yet another nostalgia one. that didn't work. Right. The grandpa special at the movies, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, whose biggest opening weekend demographic was over the age of 50. For, I'm not sure if we should rank the Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny disappointment above the Flash, below. It's neck and neck here on the biggest disappointment of the year. Yeah, you know, it's always, I think every, whether it's success story or disappointment story, it's hard to rank anything. But certainly it's in the conversation of, of being one of the biggest surprising performances of the year in a negative way. And maybe in retrospect, we'll, we'll go back and look at it and wonder why it's such a surprise. But I think the fact that, you know, Disney did spend $300 million on this film. So there was always going to be an expectation that they at the very least had the confidence it could be a bigger blockbuster player than it has ended up being. And it, even if it still has staying power, even if word of mouth can help it through the summer amid all the competition, it's just not ever going to make up the ground that it, that it lost by, by falling so far short of expectations. And these are two movies that the studios had, a lot of confidence in. The Flash screened at CinemaCon for exhibitors. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny had a very nice fancy red carpet at the Cannes Film Festival. They're not movies they were trying to hide. They were movies that really these studios put in a lot of effort to promote, to make work in theaters. Audiences simply weren't there. Another three titles I want to go over here on the lessons we've learned on what hasn't worked from the first half of the year. Let's start with Elemental from Pixar. Sean, I'm getting worried. What's going on in Emeryville right now? Because they need a hit and they need a hit bat. They do. And, you know, the really the next hope is next year because they'll have two releases, one in the spring with Elio and one in the summer with Inside Out 2. We'll see what happens. Uh, I mean, honestly, it's I, I don't think Elemental was marketed particularly effectively, but I also think it was not timed well opening right after Spider-Verse. Nobody read the room on that one, to be frank. Yeah, it, it's hard. It, it, yeah, absolutely right. It's yeah. hard to get excited <laughs> about something like Elemental, which is a fresh IP, something new, something original. We know Pixar does a great job with that type of movie. But dude, a week after Spider-Verse just completely dominates the conversation with animated family films with a, a big like family-oriented core, parenting core at the heart of its story. Of course, a co-director on that movie being Kemp Powers, the guy that delivered Soul for Pixar during the pandemic. There's a lot of overlap in Pixar sentimentality, I think, in the core of Spider-Verse. You're right. It just it was the wrong time to bring this out. Yeah, and that's you know hopefully something that that we all learn from, especially Disney learns from when they when they're planning. Because and it's also I think an, a you know a byproduct of what we've all talked about the Disney Plus training consumers to to expect these types of movies at home. But we're, get, we're getting further and further away from that because you know how long do we use that as the excuse? At, at some point, we just have to consider maybe that style of animation can still be a draw depending on the film, but is not going to be the consistent automatic event that it was for families throughout the 2000s and, and 2010s. And then I think uh, on the superhero end of the conversation, uh, Shazam! Fury of the Gods, a lot of the things we spoke about with The Flash apply to this title in terms of 
fatigue on the DC Extended Universe, which is just now counting the days until it's reset and put out of its misery. Anything we can learn from that other than maybe don't tell your biggest fans that these movies don't matter anymore months yeah. before they come out. I, yeah. I don't know. That's a tip. I, I'm going to throw that out there. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It's uh, And we still got two more of them to go this year with Blue Beetle and Aquaman. So it's, it's really hard to find much to say right now. I, I don't envy anybody who doesn't have any control over those individual movies or who had nothing to do with the previous regimes, they're just really stuck in an odd, uncomfortable spot until, until this big reboot comes in a couple of years. And let's close out the disappointments of the first half of 2023 with a title that I personally was most disappointed to not have played well in theaters. Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret from Lionsgate. This was a movie that CinemaCon last year, I think we were both really expecting to do well once it was released theatrically. It went through some calendar changes as Lionsgate got all of its ducks in a row in in order to promote these movies theatrically. When it did hit the market, the audience that should have been there wasn't there. What happened with that movie? Yeah, that one, I think ultimately just, if there's such a thing as a film leaning too hard into its target audience, that's probably it. And that's not really a fault of the movie. I mean, it, I think it's just more of a reality of of where the market is right now and, and the timing going into summer. The biggest takeaway there is that it was such a specific crossroads of interest between, you know, between being somewhat of a, you know, not religious film, but having a religious, religious undertone to it. And certainly being a, a book that's, while generationally appealing, maybe not quite as familiar to young girls in the 2020s as it as it was to maybe our parents' age, or especially our, our maybe our grandparents' age to some extent. So a little bit of consideration, I think, just demographic-wise, maybe led to expectations being a little higher than they had a right to be. A lot of different ways to look at it, though, I think. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned that religious aspect uh, kind of not working in this movie's favor. I think another movie that went through that was Sony's Big George Foreman, a movie that I think should have performed better than it did. We're not talking about a $100 million movie, either with Are You There, God, or Big George Foreman, but definitely more than they made. Sean, thanks for that uh, recap. Before we let you go and get uh, Rebecca and Patrick Wilson here for our feature segment, we do have to talk about what's coming up ahead of us. We'll go into more detail on everything in a future episode. But right now, let's start with your forecast for the end of the year. What do you expect 2023 to end at at the domestic market? And then let's break that down by quarter. So I think, you know, I'm sticking close to the range we've been at for a while of, of over eight and a half billion. I still think we could push nine billion, even though a couple of films haven't haven't hit their high end of expectations. Usually when that happens, something comes in to offset it. We've got six months for that to happen. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, there's always surprises here, whether they're positive or negative. So what are you looking forward to the most? What's really picking up the most heat in our long range forecasts? I think looking just near term, it's it's Barbie, it's Oppenheimer, it's Mission Impossible. It's it's really if there's been a month circled on the calendar for this year, it's been July because of just how packed it looks like, and that's that's still true despite the fact that Indiana Jones won't give it the lead in that had been hoped for. You know, I look at August looks a little bit better than last year with films like Meg Two and, and Ninja Turtles. Maybe some mid players like Gran Turismo or or Blue Beetle or a couple of other titles can can perform in a decent mid range. We'll see. But I also think September and October look even better. Equalizer 3, Craven the Hunter, Five Nights at Freddy's. Just all around, I think there's a there's a more there's more balanced release slate in the fall than we had last year, certainly. 
What's your forecast for Q3 and Q4? So I think Q3, you know, really the goal for both is to get over at least $2 billion. One of them needs to exceed that by, by a decent margin in, in order to hit that $9 billion upper end goal. Right now, I, I think maybe it, it's kind of a toss-up. I think Barbie is really going to have a, a lot to say about that. As, as, as more as its expectations go up, that could add a, a $100 or $200 million to Q3. So looking at that, you know, maybe something around Q1 to Q2, I think for July through September could be realistic if, if all of these movies just hit, especially in July. That puts a little bit less pressure on, on Q4, which, which doesn't have an Avatar or a Spider-Man at the back end of the year. That's going to be important to look at. So the more the higher above $2 billion Q3 can get, then, then Q4 just really kind of can reach that $2 billion mark or a little bit higher, and, and we'd still get to that upper end. That's what we're all hoping for. Thank you so much for joining us, Sean, here on the Box Office Podcast. And coming up next, we've got actor and star of Insidious Red Door, Patrick Wilson, also a theatrical exhibitor in conversation with her very own Rebecca Polly. That's coming up after the break. And now on to our feature segment with my colleague Rebecca Pauly interviewing the star and director of Insidious, The Red Door, Patrick Wilson, who also serves as an exhibitor through Cinema Lab, a company that goes out, restores, renovates, and reopens theaters all over small towns in the United States. Rebecca speaks to Patrick Wilson not only about his latest film, which recently opened up in number one place at the domestic market with a $32.6 million opening weekend, dethroning Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, a great bit of momentum for the film going into its sophomore frame this weekend. Rebecca and Patrick Wilson go over the movie and his career as an exhibitor. So take it away, Rebecca. How long have you been, you know, thinking about directing a film? Like at what I imagine that the opportunity has come up before or it could have come up if you had pursued it. It's a long answer because and I'll try to make it quick, but I've been thinking about it for a long time. I really have. I felt like I would naturally transition into that as well, not solely being a director, but you know, but I knew I would I would exercise that portion of <laughs> of me for Close to 30 years, I've been, you know, we'll go back and do master classes and work with actors, spe specifically young actors. And that I always loved that. I, whether it was film or whether it was musical theater, I've, I've literally been doing that since I got out of college. And, uh, and I've directed a play at my alma mater. And so I've been just kind of looking for the right opportunity. And so about now, probably four and a half, five years ago, I, I, was, I was trying to get a project together that I'd co-written with a friend of mine. We couldn't really get that together, but my agency said, would you be interested in, write, in directing something that you didn't write? And I said, sure, if it spoke to me, of course. And so when this idea came up, it was just a kernel of an idea that Lee had written and they pitched it to me. And I said, well, if I'm going to direct it, this is the story I would want to tell things that I, that I knew, you know, make him go to an art school. I went to a theater school so I could relate to that. This is the kind of themes I want to deal with. And then once they were on board, then we got a writer to write it. So I knew I was coming from a very organic perspective of uh, something that I would could continually be passionate about because it was must have been about four years uh, working on this. So yeah, that's the that's the long answer. But I always felt like I would transition into it. I guess one of the benefits of of working within this franchise versus something that you wrote and you know shepherded through the entire process is you know this is coming out in theaters. <laughs> I mean, no, I was just going to say that I've said 
I've said that a ton. I mean, that's one of the, also the caveats is because for a second I was like, you know, I don't know if I want to step in and try to fit into James's shoes and James Wan's shoes. Then I said, are you kidding me to have the opportunity to have the freedom of a fifth movie in a franchise because you've got a built-in fan base, but you know, there aren't a lot of great number five movies that have kind of, you know what I mean? So yeah, there's yeah. a freedom and, and you know what, just make it yours, make it truthful. And then nobody, and then nobody can really judge that it's sort of bulletproof in my opinion, because it's just me. So take it or leave it. It's just my feelings on the subject and knowing that it could be seen in a theater. I thought, what a great, what a blessing. I mean, it's so hard to get movies in theaters and to have movies work in theaters. And and here I've got Blumhouse and Sony that are just two of the best in the business. And I've done so many movies with Blumhouse that, you know, I knew it would get its fair shake. You know, I knew we would get out in theaters. So yeah, that's incredibly thrilling. I feel a little, it was funny. I remember it's totally shamelessly stealing Tom Cruise's line from a couple of weeks ago, but I loved him saying, I do, I make movies for theaters. I make movies for people in, to watch them in theaters. Bam. <laughs> You know, and it's, I know it sounds lame because I'm not comparing myself to Tom, even though we share the same birthday, but I feel the same way. I just do because that's what I like. I've done things for the small screen and I love limited series stuff, but if I'm making a movie, I want my movie to be seen on a screen. I just do. That's the experience that I like. So horror is one of those franchises that one of the few, as you know, that perform well. It just—we've been having such a great, uh, a great year for horror on the big screen. I agree. Smile. That was another first-time awesome. director. Horror and comedy are the genres that are cited most often. As they just—they're not as good if you're alone. <laughs> sure, but hit comedy is—it's very tough these days to really make it successful on a on a bigger budget scale. You know, that's even more difficult, I'd say, than horror. But you're right; it's been a great year for horror, for sure. What was your hometown theater growing up? My hometown? Oh, that's interesting. I mean, I grew up in St. Petersburg, Florida. So we went to, we had several. We had one in uh, Pinellas Park. We had one in uh, Tyrone Square Mall. Remember that? We go there quite a bit. Uh, <laughs> now there's Baywalk in downtown St. Pete. That was not around when I was a kid. Yeah, so those were the two, you know, big old school 80s multiplexes that I'd go with my- I can picture what the carpet looks like. <laughs> oh, God, you can smell it. Signs, yeah. You know what I mean? You can see Coke stains and popcorn butter everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Do you have like a, I always like asking, uh, is there an early formative memory you have of seeing a movie in the theater? Do you remember maybe one of the first ones that you went to? You know, I remember standing in line for Star Wars. I remember, I remember seeing a lot of movies in, I remember seeing Grease when I was a kid, like five. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing Zorro in the theater. Uh, in a matinee. And I remember what that theater looks like. It's so funny. I don't remember. I remember going on my first date to see Footloose. Uh, <laughs> with, it was a double date with a friend of mine. And we took two of our good friends that were twins. And to this day, I'm not sure which one was supposed to be my date for the day because they, they looked identical, but it was a great movie. Yeah. So, yes. My my parents' first date was uh, was Scarface, so I, I think Footloose. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> that's amazing. Oh, that's great! I love it. Like looking at it as a direct. I mean, you've been through now for the first time the whole 
you know, screening process and test screening and going back and, and yeah. you know, is it different seeing the film for the first time in an audience as a director versus oh, yeah. as an actor at a festival? Oh, oh, like, oh, God, yeah, because you're, it's funny, for a guy that comes from the theater, I'm incredibly technical with my film acting. So it would only make sense that, that I really gravitate towards that side in directing. So when you're really watching something and you want to make sure the sound is perfect. It's just, it's, it's just, it's, it's music. You have to, sometimes it's actually music, sometimes taking out the music, but knowing that you crafted something because with a horror film, especially in a theater, it either, <laughs> either works or it doesn't, you know, yeah. and there were a couple early screenings where things that I thought were hilarious, nothing Two audiences, nothing, no laugh. And you're like, Oh, okay. All right. So yeah. this, uh, they <laughs> don't want to, they don't want to laugh here. And so you got to go back and, and it's awesome because then I, I reshaped performances. That's where you directors and an editor's medium. And, and I, I reshaped performances sometimes taking, you know, and really making sure that it was who's the most important person here. It's, it's the audience. So you got to look at it through the lens of what the audience wants. And that was, and like you said, going through the screenings and, you know, all the, talkbacks and on a major scale, it really is a blessing because for most first time directors don't, don't get that, you know, it's either a short film or a film that's going straight to streaming and you hope people take care of it. Or if you get, you know, your final cut, all of that stuff. And I just was, I got to see a sitting in a mark global marketing meeting and you're seeing people's pitches from like Indonesia and what they're going to do. And you're like on my little movie that I've been sitting upstairs with editing with my friend who's in Connecticut. We're on computers. Like we've been making this movie for a year and a half. And now marketing people in Indonesia are talking about how they need to sell my movie. It's it's really humbling, but what, what a blessing and learning experience it's been for me. Yeah. It's it's so neat looking at, I mean, even now we're getting some films that were supposed to go to streaming originally and then get put on the big screen and you watch mm. some of them. Uh, like an evil That's dead You're like, it looks yeah. gorgeous. I don't, how is that ever going to come out on streaming? Yeah, no, I know, man, I know. It's, um, yeah, I mean, we actually changed the framing of the film right during um, during our color correction, actually. Uh, changed scope, changed size, went and reframed the whole movie <laughs> like four weeks ago now. And that's a- another learning experience because once you start watching it on a big screen, you're like, oh, this is much different than cutting it on my computer. You know, it's all it's all learning process. So you just try to make the best decisions you can. I mean, like, I hope no one watches this on their smartwatch. <laughs> yeah, you start, it's funny, because I remember, you know, even last year before I'd ever directed anything, you know, when you, I'd see directors that would, you know, say, oh, I've got to go into this theater and I have to check all the sound. And you're like, really? I mean, you're, man, you're real precious about that stuff. Or don't watch it on your iPad. Don't do it. And all of a sudden, I'm that guy. I'm like in there yesterday, checking the sound. I need to hear mm-hmm. both theaters play this part. I just need to see what levels it on seven or I keep it at seven. Don't, don't let them go down to six. Like it's just because when you sit and you cut it and then you, you, you spend, you know, however many weeks on a, on a soundstage at Warner brothers, an amazing soundstage, you hear every, every little sound you want the audience to experience that, you know? And if they don't, you feel like that's not the movie. So I can only imagine someone like Scorsese or Spielberg thinking like, God, don't watch my movie on a phone. Like that just makes me cry. You know, it's just not what we intend ever. (laughs) 
So what uh, what's next in terms of, of directing now that you've been through this process? I don't know if you want to take a, a break after working on this. Yeah, I'll take a break. <laughs> what other sort of uh, sort of movie, like a genre or tone or whatever, would, would you like to direct for the big screen? Well, since I'm talking to you, it's interesting because I do that that does it's not just about sort of my own ego, like I want to go make a western. Like, sure, I do want to make a western, but I I start to think or whatever. I'd like it to be a different genre. However, like we started the conversation, I want the movie to be seen. So as a being an exhibitor as well, and and understanding what works in theaters, because I see my receipts every day and our our box office every day from our theaters. Like I, you know, I want to make sure it's a movie that audiences want to see. So I don't know. The answer is I don't know. All I know is that whatever genre it will be, it'll be something very personal to me because even my wife would attest to this like I'm just so all in it's just so all-consuming and I I, honestly there has not been a day in four years even taking time off during Christmas and when I was shooting Aquaman I was working on the script in the morning for this I mean I'd be in my costume typing away thinking of scenes it's it has occupied my brain space for since June of 2019 Oh, I all through say, the pandemic, all through. All through. We pushed a year. I needed to train for Aquaman. I'd train during the day, come work on this, you know, in the early morning. I, so, you know, I'm not saying 24 seven, but every, every day, every single day, I'm thinking about this movie. So I got to shake that out of me first and foremost, and, uh, and then find something that can, that can match that level uh, or demand that kind of attention. So it's got to be something I'm I'm deeply passionate about. How do you like being an exhibitor? It's it's been uh, you opened about a year ago. Is it time? Yeah, uh, uh, two years. Yeah, I mean it's a yeah. COVID years. So, yeah. I mean it's um it's a learning process for sure. I love it. In it's hard when you get in conversation. You know, it's funny is it's hard when you get on emails where you do feel this sense of like, when you're the only guy that's an actor now, an actor director that's on the email and people are like, I heard that's not very good. And you're like, well, hold on guys. That's not fair to the filmmakers. You know, I'm always the, uh, the artist in the bunch, like easy guys, <laughs> not to play this card, but none of you have ever made a movie. So uh, just lighten just up on the, uh, you see it. Yeah. On the, yeah. Just, just lighten up on the, well, I heard stuff. Like, can you just experience the film? So I'm usually that guy on on email chains to the to the annoyance of my partners. But you know, you know what's been interesting is we have it's sadly not surprising hundreds of uh, cities, towns that have said, "Hey, can you come save our theater?" And and you have to really sift through and find, okay, why is your theater not working? Is it a lack of desire from the town? Because we've also run into that. It's like we're not. You can't just come in as some. You know, I'm not going to come in and drop millions of dollars, nor can I, uh, into something that's not going to be supported by the town. So we found, for instance, in New Canaan, Connecticut, where we're working with the town to rebuild their hundred year old theater. I mean, it's going to be beautiful, but it's a it's a it's the gem of their downtown. It's gorgeous. And you know what? It should be restored and we'll restore it with you and we'll run it. And and that to me, that to me is sort of the core of who we are taking if you've got a town that, you know, a big movie chain is not going to move in there because the numbers don't match. But if I can make the boutique experience something important to those people 
and and play movies that they want to see and maybe have an elevated experience. And, you know, we're going to have this really beautiful bar upstairs. So it's, it's different. It's a different experience than just, you know, I don't know, let's go see a movie. Cause I think we, we take the care out of, out of seeing movies. You know, I think a lot of us, you know, certain generation still are nostalgic about the way that we felt as kids, but you want to make sure that the younger audience knows, and I don't, I know this is going to sound sort of, you know, I'll just say it anyway, but you want an audience to respect the space. You want the young audience to understand like, Hey, special things can happen in here. It's not just, oh, I don't know. Let me get on my phone. Let me watch trailers. Cool. You know, and, and I, had a guy, I had a guy argue with me when I was, when I asked him to turn off his phone during a movie. Yeah. Like, like I just, no, weird. I know. So you want to, you want to curate and that doesn't happen overnight and it's not about policing the area or any of that. I mean, it's certainly in security. It's not about that, but it's, I keep, I always tell my guys this, like it's, we've got to define their experience. We have to make them feel like this is, this is somewhere that, that is their third place. That is, that is special and not just, I don't know, I'll go see an Avengers movie or whatever it is. Like I, it's you a want it to feel center. different. It You're should be a community center with all these different. Well, and I, th- I think that's the only way it survives. I'll be honest with you on a bigger scale. You know, I, I spent a lot of time in England and I was really fascinated by like their little uh, everyman theaters that are usually one, two screens. And I was like, that's, I know the rents. And they're boutique They're, you know, that's what not- we're trying to do. And we can't everywhere. Cause you're sometimes filling a six screen multiplex and, trying to adjust your numbers and figure out your audience and all of that. But, but, but that's the goal. If you can find those sort of two to five screens, you know, ideally two, two, three, four, that where you can really curate it and not have the overhead and all of that, but still have it be an experience. And someone can go, Oh my God, I, I just want to go see whatever movie's playing there. I just love, I love mm-hmm. the vibe, you know, that's, that's what, that's it's what a, I want to break. It's a mental, like, you know, you can yeah, sink because- into something else. Because we all need it. I mean, I know I'm preaching to the choir, but give me another experience that you know, like we can't control. I can't control whether the movie is good or not, but I can control your experience in there, uh, everything surrounding it. And it's like, you know, what other experience is changed every week, but there's a, but, Mm -hmm. but you have this, but you know, a consistent feeling. So I can have a consistent feeling of the space, but the environment change, the, the movie changes every week. It's, it's a, you know, I'm anyway, preaching to the choir. And we've all been to the movies and seen a bad movie, but because of the experience, something about it, the energy of the audience or whatever, like it was sure. a fun time, even if the movie was. Sure. Sure. I mean, it is what it is. Sure. Of course. So uh, thank you, Patrick. I think I'm uh, out of time, but it was uh, great to speak with you. And if you ever yeah. want to nerd out about, uh, about movie theaters, box office, <laughs> we've been here for a hundred years and we're going to be here for another hundred. So love it. I love it. I love it. Great to talk to you. And that was Patrick Wilson, star of Insidious, The Red Door, now in theaters. He's also an exhibitor, so don't forget to check out Cinema Lab that uh, Patrick Wilson is associated with. They are renovating theaters all over the country, bringing movies back to main towns all over the country. Thanks again for that interview, Rebecca. And thanks again to my colleague, Sean Robbins, for joining us earlier in this episode. I'm Daniel Luria, and we will all be back here next week for another episode of the Box Office Podcast. This show is produced in collaboration between Box Office Pro, the Box Office Company, and Record Edit Podcast. New episodes every single Thursday. Don't forget to subscribe, and we will talk to you again next week.